Welcome to the latest edition of the Crossroads Podcast. I'm John Burke, America's Editor for Information News. Joining me today is Latin American Editor Jonathan Carmody. Uh, next for her Crossroads debut, our Brazilian colleague, Gabriela Valente. Uh, and finally, our USP3 reporter, Abigail Muller. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks for having us. Before we get going, uh, just wanted to invite you guys to invite everyone to join us for a webinar uh, being held next Wednesday on May 20th at 11 a.m., where I'll chair a panel with uh, DJ Gribben of Stone Peak Infrastructure Partners, John Hibbert of the Georgia DOT, and Jennifer Almanta Transurban uh, to discuss uh, the P3 prospects uh, during and after COVID-19. If you go to information's LinkedIn page, you'll get more information on how to, how to register. So uh, this morning started off with a bang because it came out of Europe. Uh, French asset manager, Tika Howe Capital, entered exclusive talks to buy infrastructure developer, Star America. I'm apologizing, apologizing now for my mispronunciation of the name, but I'm pretty sure I did. Uh, anyway, this continues an ongoing consolidation wave powering institutional capital with Greenfields developers, which include uh, CDBQ's purchase of a majority stake in Plenary Americas, announced a few weeks ago, and earlier Sun Life's buyout of Infrared Capital Partners. Meanwhile, today, uh, Irish domiciled mainstream renewables, as exclusively reported uh, by SparkSpread, is searching for equity partners for its uh, platform of renewable projects in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. The marriage of uh, the French asset manager is a little bit strange in that's marrying a Eurocentric asset manager to a very specific domestic developer of Greenfields projects in the US. Uh, prior to this deal, uh, Tigahau had um, no, had no uh, US exposure other than a uh, North American high yield bond, uh, high yield funds, excuse me. Um, Star America, meanwhile, has been uh, very active in the P3 space in the US. Uh, their most recent victory was being a proponent for the Howard County Courthouse in 2018. Um, at the same time, it's also in the middle of raising its second fund. Uh, last form DFOD with the SEC indicated it was halfway there at around 300 million of its uh, 600 million target. Uh, lastly, it has uh, diversified away uh, from Greenfield as of late, as its last two investments were a, um, excuse me, away from P3, I should be more specific. Uh, its last two investments, one was a private data center deal with the state of Indiana, uh, and another one was a, a behind-the-meter energy storage business uh, called uh, Demand up in Canada, uh, where it took a majority stake in that business. Uh, Jonathan, I thought it'd be interesting to get your perspective um, it, it, from a Latin American deal flow uh, perspective, because you've seen a lot of these odd marriages of institutional capital into um, Latin American greenfield projects. Um, you know, I, I think the, the key word here is culture. So I kind of wanted to get a sense about what those deals were and, you know, what you've heard about some of the, the culture behind uh, these deals. So there's a big recent example in Latin America and Mexico where the developer that's owned by Mexico's richest man, Carlos Slim, Ideal, sold a stake to two Canadian pension funds, to OTPP and CPP Investments. 
you know, they've been co-investors for a long time. The two Canadian pension funds started investing in their highways several years ago. And this seemed like it was a, a natural progression. It seemed like the relationship really grew from those early investments. And as Mexico's market evolved, there appeared to be a, a better way for them to get involved in the projects beyond just contributing minority stakes to some of the existing toll road projects that Ideal had developed. So the interesting thing about this deal in particular is, despite the size, you know, it's a $1.6 billion acquisition and something that closed during the COVID crisis on the 20th of April. There's an extra element to this where in Mexico, they've established a lot of different institutional investment vehicles. Some of the earliest funds were known as CKDs, which were development capital certificates. They then decided that it was time to give more responsibility to the institutional investors to invest abroad. And they developed the SERPES. Uh, they were investment in projects, uh, as the name goes. But those were interesting in that only a few of the, the fund managers have begun investing those in infrastructure projects abroad. A lot of other institutional managers, people like BlackRock, people like uh, KKR, people like Partners Group, they've been filing SERPs over the last few years, but mainly to invest in their vehicles. So BlackRock will take money for its funds in the US, KKR likewise. But the interesting thing in this deal with CPPIB, uh, OTPP and EDL, was they decided to shift some of the assets down into a FIBRA E investment trust. So this is interesting to see the Canadian pension funds investing in that kind of trust vehicle, which is designed to give benefits to Mexican investors particularly. So that's an interesting one where they get to, to drop some of the assets into that vehicle and then sell shares in that trust to then kind of raise additional capital that they can they can use for future investments. The other example I guess the advantage at this point, given that transaction, of course, is that it seems like the Afores uh, or the pension funds down there have obviously a strong institutional memory of investing in these vehicles at this point, right? Yeah. So the CKD funds have been around for several years. I think some of the earliest date back to around 2012, 2013. Macquarie was an early investor in, in these kind of vehicles. Uh, raising capital and making several investments in the core infrastructure sectors. Uh, those funds are now kind of coming to a close, the, the original ones. So it's going to be very interesting to see how much they've really been successful or not. That's going to be one of the things that we'll be looking over in the next couple of months to see if now those funds that are now divesting assets, the original CKDs, are now going to be shown to have been profitable and really great ideas or if they never really worked quite possibly as as profitably as we would have expected or hoped. Well, uh, globally, I'd say, uh, Jonathan, from our coverage, um, it seems like it's a very strong secondaries market that's out there right now, uh, globally, of course. So um, I'd be curious to see if that money starts to flow uh, or does flow to Mexico on some level. Um, I think people like Stepstone and Golding are out there just raising massive uh, secondary funds. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see, uh, see where that money flows. And also, again, is it going to flow to assets, uh, you know, in Latin America uh, at, at some point? Well, those um, are good questions. And, and, and the interesting thing as well is obviously that, you know, while we've seen funds like DIF and RDN and Meridium investing in places like Chile and Colombia and Uruguay, 
you know, there's actually a lot of intra-Latin American investment too. I mentioned the Serpes, uh, one of the Serpe vehicles owned by Mexico Infrastructure Partners, Exi. They've actually made investments in Colombia already. So you've got Mexican institutional capital investing in Colombia. Chilean fund manager SCL Energia Activa made investments also in Colombia and other countries in Latin America in the energy sector. So you've got interesting directions of, of capital within Latin America, not just Europeans or Americans coming into the region. I'm sure Gabriela will be able to, to tell you about IG4, the Brazilian private equity firm, investing in Peruvian developer Granja Montero. Now, we all know that Granja Montero is one of the largest developers in Peru, but it's had a lot of trouble recently after it became embroiled in the, the Lava Jato scandal. It lost a very large contract with the Southern Gas Pipeline deal that fell through due to that scandal. Uh, and it looks like IG4 is taking the opportunity to acquire that Peruvian developer, at least in part, and possibly acquiring a, a controlling stake in the future. Very interesting stuff. And I will get to uh, Gabriela in, in a few minutes. Um, well, I think what's going to be interesting, and we're going to get back to this a little bit later in the program, is that in, in Plenary Americas and um, Star America, assuming these deals get consummated, uh, you know, later this year, and I assume the um, the French regulatory process is a little bit strict by what I recall from the past, but uh, nevertheless, you now have effectively two very well-heeled, well-oiled uh, backers. Uh, for these development vehicles. But what we know about P3s um, is that the equity check from the equity investor, when you actually get down to it in the US, is de minimis. Uh, this is because of multiple things. Um, you have a very highly subsidized market that is out there for certain projects, uh, like private activity bonds, um, and you know a, a pretty robust private placement market behind it. Um, Corporate bankers will, will grumble sometimes about that because they're sort of like, well, where do I play? And then I, I always say, well, where, where's the equity investor going to play? Um, but, you know, they're, they're in there to be the equity investor, but also, you know, to helping develop the project. I mean, that's sort of the role. They're playing a, a couple hats. Um, but now with all with uh, this these reams of AUM to sort of back uh, them up in these development activities, I kind of wonder if what they look at takes a little bit of a more broader level, you know, whether they start looking at portfolios and more investments like uh, Star America did with its uh, behind the meter store uh, energy investment, um, or um, they also, Star America also did the data centers. Um, you know, what, what we've seen so far has been, um, you know, a little bit of a disintegration in, in the P3 market, you know, year over year, it just gets choppy. Sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's not. Um, it's going to be interesting to see um, once you see all those interests aligned, um, what the strategic direction is going to be for Star America and Plenary. Is it, do, do P3s become a little bit less a part of uh, their portfolio uh, in favor of some bigger deals or more deals around private development, uh, for instance? Um, so I think that that's, those are the kind of things I, I think about. When, it, when I look at these deals, um, it's almost like when, when infrastructure funds, um, you know, step up and they raise their second or third fund and all of a sudden they're, they have a $5 billion fund versus the $1 billion fund. Uh, you know, what that means in terms of the size of the check they're going to write. 
uh, here you have permanent capital, uh, which is a good thing. Um, but it also comes along with it expectations and uh, different expectations. So it's really going to be interesting to see what um, happens with these uh, platforms uh, down the road. Um, I'll get to back to the P3 space in a second. Um, so over to Brazil. Uh, Gabriela, you have been very busy as of late on uh, a number of fronts. Um, it's always a, a a colorful day in the the uh, the, re the regime of uh, Bolsonaro, um, but uh, there was a deal yesterday that caught my eye: um, the sale of a 50% uh, stake in Rodovias do Tietê to a Latache Capital Fund, uh, and that um, and Tietê is, of course, is a concessionaire of uh, about 260 miles of Brazilian highways. Uh, also under bankruptcy protection. Um, to no one's surprise, um, this fund uh, focuses on distressed assets and the transportation sector. And, you know, in in, in Latin America, you're going to find that intersection more often than not. So I, I can't say I'm surprised by, by the fact that I'm reading this. But uh, I was just curious, uh, Gabriela, what you've heard more about this transaction um, and whether there's other transactions like this that are that are coming. Hi, JB. So this is a very peculiar case because it's a dis distressed asset and it was in distress before the COVID-19 crisis. So right now, Latache, they have a turnaround plan for Rodovias Chete, but they can also uh, renegotiate the, the balance of the contract with Artespi, who is the, the regulatory agency for the state of São Paulo is the grantor of the, the, the concessions that they own here. Um, so this is a very peculiar case. Uh, Latashi is planning to do a strong haircut in Rodovias do Tietê. Uh, I heard that they are interested in 100% of the concessionaire, but uh, the other 50% belongs to AB Concessões. And both acquiring AB Concessões stake and also uh, approving their turnaround plan would have to be discussed with uh, Rodovias GT bondholders. So that's going to be a very complicated path for Latashi. Um, just in terms of uh, them granting the consent of, of taking over the 50% stake, right? Okay. Um, that, that is uh, very interesting. Um, because, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be, um, I, I've, I've looked at cases like this before and it always becomes a, a question about, you know, how, how do the bondholders get handled here? Um, mm -hmm. right. Whether there is, uh, some kind of pay down, um, you know, 50% is 50%. So whether there's some kind of pay down. Uh, there, there is going to have to be some pay down associated with this, um, you know, and and probably some exchange uh, behind it um, into something with maybe a higher higher coupon. Um, but uh, yeah, that's um, that's going to be kind of a, an interesting thing to watch. Um, Jonathan, what um what other cases can you think of where we've covered some of these bankrupt roads that you've um, I mean, Odic Brecht is part of this too, right? Just some of the Brecht concessions. Brecht has been 
Yeah, they've been selling a lot of assets since they they had trouble. Um, yeah, big bankruptcy cases continuing. I think they've been negotiating with creditors for some time. You know, one of the other big examples again was back in Mexico. Uh, Empresa Zika was an incredibly successful developer for a long time. They had uh, an ample portfolio of highway assets, water assets, prisons. They'd won a construction contract at the the giant white elephant that was the Mexico City International Airport, hmm. but eventually became cancelled. Um, and when they went into bankruptcy, there was a lot of squabbling around the assets and, and what would happen. Uh, in the end, the the lawyers who were handling the case as as mediators, they decided to actually ensure that ICA kept as many of its assets as possible, so they could sell them at a later date. But what we've been hearing from sources in the market and what we've reported uh, occasionally is that the, the real salvation for ICA came when a high wealth investor like David Martinez, who is incredibly wealthy Mexican, it's not entirely clear how he made his money or what he was doing, but he's certainly very wealthy. And he bought uh, B-series shares in ICA, giving himself quite a large stakeholding. And the impression now is that several years after they saved the company from bankruptcy, now that they're going back out into the market, competing for concessions again, he's looking to get his money back. He, he made a significant investment in the company, several hundred million dollars, I believe it was. And with that in mind, now a few of the assets that they do still have are certainly on the block. And we saw that recently with some of the sales of particularly the water assets and the jails. Uh, well, that's certainly the water assets to to one of the institutional funds that we mentioned earlier, Exe. Thank you for that, Gabby. Uh, appreciate the perspective. Um, we're going to just shift over to the the U.S. here. A lot happened in the past couple of months um, in the P3 market. Um, I'd say delays has been the the root of all this, and you know for understandable reasons. Um, at the end of the day, they're looking to to build projects, and it takes site visits and due diligence. And you know, you can certainly advance a process to a point, but then there's a point where you can't. And I think that's where you're seeing some of these delays come into focus. I think, obviously, as um, state funding and um, you know becomes an issue, too, that could be um, kind of an issue. Uh, for projects in the pipeline. But what I'm getting to today with Abby is talking about two projects that have been going on for a long time, which is apart from uh, my previous uh, discourse. Um, the Purple Line P3 project, 2016 held as a success, 2020, uh, a tough situation um, to say the least. Um, there's been uh, lawsuits and since the beginning um about the project um you know it went through um in maryland and and there was environmental lawsuits and just just from the very beginning just the actual design um and there were cost overruns which um in an lrt project uh happens well every lrt project i don't know people i've talked to before said why can't these uh consortiums get it right and i'm like well you know, I think they do as best as they can, but it just always winds up being a, a sense of cost overruns. But the real news was uh, quite recently when the lead contractors filed a notice uh, to potentially terminate their role in the consor in the consortium, 
and the project. Um, it is at the option of the chief sponsors whether to release them, and they're going to make a decision uh, within the next month to ninety days, I believe. Um, but Abby, what what can you tell us about uh, what went on here uh, behind the scenes? Um, it seemed like the 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 overruns may have, and I think some of it was also motivated in floor and what their situation is. That the combination really uh, may have triggered this event. Yeah. So essentially, the design build team, it, the D DB part of DBFOM, um, which includes Floor Lane and uh, Trailer Brothers, they pulled out of the project. Um, there was a clause in the contract which allowed them to pull out with no um, consequences. If delays reached over 365 days, which I don't have a number in front of me, but it's well, well over 365 days at this point. Um, and then, like you said, there's a legal battle between the consortium, the Purple Line Transit Partners, um, who the equity partners there are Meridian and Star America, uh, and they're in a legal battle with the Maryland Department of Transportation, citing delays. They say that they were unable to obtain the time and cost relief that they've been entitled. Um, and that, that's been going on for years at this point. Um, the project, the bonds were downgraded to BB by both S&P and Fitch. Um, it's, I mean, essentially the continued participation of the whole consortium is unstable and kind of on the rocks right now. Um, you know, it's, and, Basically, I mean, the project had just experienced delay after delay and cost overrun after cost overrun, and so much so that eventually the design build team said that they had enough. And I assume there was a um, force majeure incident or related incident uh, that caused the Purple Line Transit Partners to file for another potential change order. Uh, and that was uh, related to COVID-19. So, I, I mean, I think it, it was kind of the perfect storm of bad situations that, I, you know, I, this wasn't necessarily specifically coronavirus related, but I definitely think it may have uh, it, uh, exacerbated the process. Um, and in terms of what's going to happen next, I do think the DB team will be let off. And then I'm not, I honestly, it's kind of hard to say. Yeah, two things to add to that. Yeah, we had heard that the original date of completion was spring of 2022. Um, mm -hmm. After the delay request, it was moved to November of 2024. That was a recent uh, delay request, I think, put in. Um, so obviously, there's mm -hmm. a huge gap of time there. Um, secondly, for readers of information, uh, they've Certainly been made aware, aware of floor situation. Um, they have been among a number of guys that have been retreating slowly but surely from the P3 space. Um, and they've also were very vocal on their last uh, earnings call uh, back in March, I believe, um, that they uh, had received reverse inquiry or uh, interest in their European concession uh, portfolio. Um, and uh, 
a preliminary interest, if you will, uh, in their uh, U.S. portfolio. Um, and so it, it, you know, I guess uh, indicated that they were maybe looking around for buyers or maybe there was a reverse inquiry, possibly. Um, but it was an interesting comment they made at the time because, um, you know, they're minority holders in all their concessions. Um, so, like, there's really no process to be run effectively. The, the sale likely is going to just trade into the people that already own those projects. Um, I can't see at this point, given all that we know about the space, that newcomers would waltz into a 10% stake or 20% stake. Um, although one attractive thing could be um, they have a 40% stake in the Gordie Howe, uh, which um, could could be something to someone, uh, maybe for more of the Canadian institutional market to take a look at. That's a, a bridge that everyone needs to use at some point, not today, of course, but has a very, very long-term concession in place, so that might be something to watch. Um, anyway, but that's that's part and parcel of what Floor's doing here, and that this includes Purple Line, so... It's going to be interesting to see what happens there. Um, and to conclude, uh, again, the um, fallout in USP3 market continued with the LA Civic Center um, making a decision a couple of weeks ago. The grantor, uh, the LA Municipal Facilities Committee, uh, voted to cancel the project. This is after they already shortlisted the project, which has happened at times. Um, they said they were going to go back, uh, you know, and, and look at another a couple of other options, I guess. Um, and we you know we have reported that maybe private real estate becomes part of the next um, iteration of this project. Maybe it comes to a design builds. Um, they did cite uh, overruns associated with uh, the O&M or operations and maintenance costs. Um, as being a factor in what uh, caused them to cancel the DBFOM project. Uh, I would sort of argue to that point that um, there's a lot of people in these consortiums and uh, a lot of money and, and a lot of private project finance banking behind that has supported these projects before. So I still kind of suspect there's other ulterior motives at play here other than an O&M cost overrun. Um, but you know, I guess we'll we'll kind of find out more. But a Abby, what have we um, what what have you heard about this one? Yeah, so like you said, the official reason given was that a DBFOM is no longer the best method because of increased estimated O and M costs. Um, they said they found that while preparing the RFP, um, and I guess it just didn't come up before then, which I don't know feels a little shifty. Um, but Essentially, from people that I've been talking to, the way that they outlined it was the LA Civic Center was supposed to be the first of seven similar projects. There's seven government buildings in the same area of downtown Los Angeles that need to be redeveloped. And the um, city's uh, board of engineers, they are planning to recommend what they want to do next. By June 1st, one person I spoke to um, said it could basically look, they'll release, potentially release a request for information um, that 
would include all of the seven buildings because some of those buildings have a real estate aspect. Um, so the idea is that they would, the RFI would help structure the process in which uh, the private real estate aspect could pay for all or part of it. Mm -hmm. um, so if they, they could do another P3 that way, they could also, they could come back and decide to do it design build or um, the traditional design bid build. Uh, I really don't know what they're leading towards. Um, but yeah, I mean, the observers and people that were actually included in the process were more or less blindsided. They were not told ahead of time that, that anyone would, or there was any sort of reconsideration. Um, you know, the shortlisted teams, there was a Meridium team, a Laquarie team, and a Plenary team. Um, to my knowledge, they had no idea that this was coming. They were called and told ahead of time that uh, well, our, sorry, they were called and told ahead of the press release and ahead of the um, the meeting that actually canceled the process. But before that, they did not see it coming at all. Um, this is another project that, you know, it, I spoke to one person that they said that while coronavirus COVID-19 wasn't explicitly the reason that it was canceled, it most likely did play an impact. You know, some, someone opined that does it really look good to spend all this money in a partial privatization given the pandemic? Um, and so, I, you know, another that not explicitly canceled because of the pandemic, but definitely could have been uh, moved moved along um, as a result. Excellent. Well, that is all the time we have uh, for uh, today's program. I wanted to thank my uh, guests and fellow journalists for joining me today on today's program. Stay safe out there. Burke out.